0: My name's Carly. I'm an operations director and mom of three kids, and I want Peak 40 Health. Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you're in your mid-30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubbs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making midlife your best life. Hey, hey, Dr. Mark Bubs here, your host for the Peak 40 podcast. I hope you had a fantastic weekend and ready to dive in to a few more new episodes this week. Now, before we do, I just want to circle back to see what we've covered in the first three episodes. Because ideally what we're trying to create here is a narrative that runs through these episodes as a way, again, to, to guide you and to provide that foundation so that you can build your nutrition, your exercise, your, your lifestyle plan that fits, you know, that madness, that hecticness, that lack of time that you have in midlife. And so in the first episode, we talked breakfast. Always remember when you're trying to figure out where to start if things have gone off the rails or off piste, start at, at the beginning of the day. When your compliance is highest, getting off on the right foot to start your day is a crucial piece of the puzzle because that will help you to stay focused and energetic throughout the day rather than having to navigate all those energy highs and lows. From there, in episode two, we talked mindset and of course, to build lasting change really requires not only the right mindset, but what we'll dig into further down the road, which I discuss in Peak 40, knowing yourself a little bit better and understanding your values so you can start orienting these new behaviors towards your values, or really what happens first is realizing that the behaviors you currently have, unfortunately, some, and if you're really struggling, many of them are actually going in the opposite direction, right? They're oriented completely 180 degrees in the opposite direction to your values. And that is really going to be a problem because ultimately your productivity, your happiness is really going to struggle so setting that right mindset is something we'll always be coming back to on the podcast. And of course, in, in episode three, the same idea of consistency, this time on the exercise front, right? We need to find small chunks of time to be able to repeat exercise. And in episode three, we kick that, we kick the discussion off with hit type training and really time efficient versions. So you're up to speed here. We're into episode number four and you know, realistically, two-thirds of the population are now overweight or obese. As a it doesn't matter if you're in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., around the world, we're struggling with higher blood sugar levels, which leads to, to weight gain, inflammation, and has all these trickle-down effects in terms of our risk for prediabetes, cardiovascular issues, high blood pressure. And at the heart of this whole story, really, is the fact that our food environment, the stuff that's around us, the things we have access to, are really high in calories and low in nutrients. And so in today's episode, we're going to talk about cravings. And we're going to talk about the brain's role in steering this whole conversation around what we eat, because ultimately the brain is deciding. And who better than Dr. Stefan Guignet, renowned scientist, University of Washington, as well as the author of The Hungry Brain. He's going to talk us through a few key concepts here. Stefan's going to talk about the role of the brain in steering our decisions around what we eat, around the role of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is really that reward biochemical. And in this clip, he's going to kick things off by talking about how in research, when scientists are doing research on obesity in animal models, they realized not too long ago that the fastest way to make an animal a rodent gain weight was to feed it human food. And so that sort of sets the narrative around how we really are you know, swimming upstream against a pretty strong current. So, so check out this clip and I'll catch you on the other side.
1: There was a rat that was, um, on his lab bench and it happened to come across a bowl of fruit loops that one of his fellow graduate students had put there. And rats are normally very wary of unfamiliar foods. And so they, they don't usually do anything but just kind of sniff or nibble something they've never seen before but the rat went over to the Fruit Loops and just started completely stuffing its face.
0: <laughs>
1: and yeah, and it, this, this is pretty, pretty unusual for a rat. And so this gave Sclafani this
2: idea
1: of, well, maybe I should just, if I want to make these rats fat, maybe I should just feed them human foods. Maybe I should just go out, get palatable, highly palatable processed calorie dense human foods and put a bunch of it in their cages and see what happens. And it turns out, that this diet, which he originally called the um, supermarket diet, but later um, the more common name for it now is the cafeteria diet, they just absolutely gorge and become super obese. And there's no other diet that you can feed them, not a diet high in sugar, not a diet high in fat, not a high, not a diet high in sugar and fat. There's no other diet that you can give a normal rodent that will make it eat more or develop obesity more quickly than feeding it palatable processed human food. It's been expertly crafted to deliver the, um, the properties that our brains are hardwired to look for through natural selection. Um, Yeah. And so I think that it's just a very basic observation. I think that, these foods are so fattening to rodents. But I think it's also very, very profound in a, in a really simple, common sense way, but something that I think is very important and actionable is that if you surround yourself with those types of calorie-dense processed foods, your brain is going to drive you toward overeating and obesity. That's just kind of how we're wired. And And by the way, I didn't mention this, but There were actually similar studies that were done in humans on this so-called cafeteria diet that found very similar effects. So when you lock people up with a variety of highly palatable calorie-dense foods and you let them easily get as much of it as they want, people will just naturally overeat tremendously and start gaining weight rapidly.
0: You dig into the roles of various um, neurotransmitters and brain chemicals and dopamine being one of them. And the the common misconception of dopamine is more of the pleasure uh, neurotransmitter. Can you, can you tell us the, can you break a few myths there and tell us the real role of, of dopamine and its function in the brain and body?
1: What dopamine is, it's a learning and motivation chemical. So, um, and I think the reason why we get it confused with pleasure is because in the brain, learning and motivation are very closely tied in with pleasure so generally what you see is that all three of those things come together so you see learning you see motivation and you see pleasure all happening at the same time and that's something that you call that's something that's called reward and this is something this is a response that the brain has to a variety of things that it's hardwired to to want like food especially food with certain properties sex, uh, comfort, you know, physical comfort, uh, social um, social kudos, or whatever it is um, that our brains are wired to want, when we achieve those goals, we experience this thing called reward. And so since pleasure is part of that, you know, three-part process of reward, it's kind of easy to associate, with, associate it with that process. Um, but actually dopamine is more relevant to the learning and the motivation element. So basically what happens, and I'll go through how this happens in food since that's really the the topic that we're most interested in here. For sure. sure. Um the brain is hardwired by natural selection to look for certain properties, certain specific properties in food. And these are the properties that would have sustained the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. And so, these are things like um, carbohydrate, fat, protein, salt, glutamate, which is that meaty, umami flavor. Um, we, We have sensors literally in both the mouth and the small intestine that detect those substances, and those send a signal up to the brain that causes dopamine to be released. And so, when we eat a food that's very concentrated in those properties, so let's say you eat a pizza and you have it with the soda or you have some ice cream or potato chips or something that has really concentrated amounts of those substances that are chemically detected, especially by your small intestine, um, that spikes a lot of dopamine in your brain. And basically, the more dopamine spikes in your brain – the more it triggers this process of learning and motivation. So basically your brain learns to prefer the foods that contain those substances. So let's say you eat a slice of pizza, your brain gets wind of all the awesome stuff that's in that there's tons of starch, there's tons of fat, there's some protein in there. Your brain says, this is an awesome source of the things that I'm looking for. I want to do this again. I want to eat this pizza again. So it spikes that dopamine And what that does is it it causes your brain to remember all the sensory cues that were associated with that pizza. So the smell of it, the sight of it, the situation you were in, the people you were with, the name of the restaurant, all of that stuff gets positive reinforcement. And so what that means is that all of those cues, all those sensory cues turn into motivational triggers the next time you encounter them. And so your brain learns and your brain learns to be motivated by those cues. And so the next time you smell the pizza, the next time you see that greasy box or the next time you see the restaurant or the next time you hang out with your friend who you always have pizza with, that's a cue for your brain to say, your your brain says, oh, this is a situation in which I can get pizza. I remember this. This is a situation in which I can get a food that I really, really like on some like fundamental hardwired level. And so it triggers that motivation for you to obtain and eat the pizza. And that motivation is something that we commonly call a craving.
0: So let's unpack a little bit of what Stefan's talking about in those clips. The thing that really stands out, obviously, is the fact that ultra-processed food, right, the stuff that comes in boxes and bags, the stuff that we spend over 50% of our household spending in Canada and the U.S. and the U.K. on is made up of this combination of crunch and sweet and salty that drives us to overconsume. The smell, the sight, the situation, the people, all of these things become positive reinforcements for your brain and, and trigger this motivational trigger to want to consume more. And so ultimately, this is one of our biggest stumbling blocks is our food environment. And that is globally the environment that's all the foods available to us in the supermarket, but it's also the environment in your house, right? In your kitchen, in your pantry, what's available at your office? I do talks for corporate talks, you know, downtown Toronto, central London, around the world, and I'm always amazed at the treats and snacks and nibbles and candy and sugars and things that we provide employees that are, yeah, I'm going to give them a little spark of energy for 30 minutes or an hour, but then we're going to be really struggling after that. And so environment is hugely important. You can't be making food decisions all day long. We need to start to automate some of these processes. And I'll get to the action items for you at the end of this episode but what I'd like to do here is juxtapose two different scenarios. So the first one you'll hear from Rob Wolf, who talks about how we sort of hijack uh, our satiety cues by introducing lots of different tastes. And so he'll give you a really interesting example of the the kitchen sink Sunday challenge, which is, you know, ridiculous in itself, but it really highlights this. And on the other end of the spectrum, we'll go back to... To Stefan's interview and look at a potato farmer who ate nothing but potatoes to see what kind of impact that diet had on his cravings. Again, we're not promoting either of these diets, but it is to highlight the principle around what's driving these cravings. All right, I'll circle back with you at the end of this clip.
2: So, Adam Rickman is pretty famous. He had a show on like HGTV uh, called Man vs. Food, and he would go do these massive eating challenges where he would need to eat like a 72 ounce steak in a certain period of time. And one of these challenges was called the kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge. And it was Look an eight, eight pound <laughs> ice cream sundae. And they literally serve this thing in a kitchen sink. And uh, to date, there had only been like three people who were able to eat this thing in a certain allotted of time right. and and they would win and I don't know what they won uh, diabetes or high what exactly. the winning deal was <laughs> but so he gets in and he starts eating this thing and I I don't think anybody would argue that a good ice cream sundae isn't pretty delicious it's a, you know I mean it's got the sprinkles and the hot fudge and all that sort of stuff um, but even though he has what is arguably a hyper palatable food like a really really tasty you know, pile of food, mountain of food. At some point he started bogging down and he bogged down so badly. That you can see in the video where he actually starts retching and kind of gagging as he tries to hit, to take another bite of this ice cream sundae. And he's only about a third of the way through when this starts happening. So you're like, Oh, there's no way this guy's going to succeed. Then he does something that just befuddles most people in, in standard dietetics. He orders, Plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And then he starts nibbling on the fries and then taking another bite of ice cream and nibbling on the fries and taking a bite of ice cream. And he is able to complete eating the ice cream sundae, which he would have failed at. But the only way he's able to do it is by eating
0: more total food. This is the story of uh, Chris Voigt, the director of the Washington Potato. Uh, state commission who decides to eat nothing but potatoes for two months, which is basically twenty potatoes a day. Um, can you share historic? I think that really highlights this uh, quite well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So he, um, at one point, the state of Washington decided to remove potatoes from the list of approved foods for the Women, Infants, and Children program. So this is a food assistance program for <clears throat> um, women and young children to try to uh, support nutritional adequacy in the diets of, of children in the United States for lower income people. The reason they decided to take potatoes off the list is because they classified it as a vegetable. And I guess the idea is that, you know, they don't want people replacing like broccoli and, and greens with potatoes. And I totally understand that. They're not really the same thing. Oh, yeah, and also most people eat most of their potatoes as, like, fries and chips. Yeah, That's exactly. a um, good note there. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he decided to eat nothing but potatoes and a very small amount of oil for, I think, was it two months? Essentially, his, his goal, his stated goal was to not lose weight. So he didn't want to lose weight. He wanted to keep eating enough potatoes to maintain his weight, but he couldn't do it. He started losing weight immediately and like he had very little hunger, a fair amount of weight. I don't remember exactly how much and basically any metabolic marker you want to look at, whether it was his cholesterol or his glucose or his blood pressure improved considerably. He stopped snoring. Essentially, his health improved across the board by eating a diet that was something like 85%. Quickly digesting starch. And so for me, this is really interesting because it suggests that, you know, these ideas that starch or carbohydrate is the enemy, and especially fast digesting starch and its effects on insulin, and that's the primary cause of obesity. We hear this idea a lot. I think this potato diet thing is kind of a, a pretty striking counterexample of how that's not that's not always the case. And I would say that it's probably not the case in general. Um, and it's not just one person, you know, there have been this, this potato diet has become kind of like an internet phenomenon. I don't know if you've come across these web pages of, um, potato dieters, but there are a lot of these folks who do this diet and find that it really cuts their appetite and helps them eat fewer calories. And by the way, I'm not, um, recommending the potato diet <laughs> for sure. Year, for sure. Um, I just find it interesting, an interesting illustration of principles. And I think that if you want, if you really want to understand human eating behavior and you want to, you want to understand body fatness and obesity, if you really want to understand it, you have to make sense of observations like that. You have to make sense of observations that low-carbohydrate and low-fat diets both cause fat loss. And the more the lower you go in either direction, the more fat loss and the more appetite suppression you're going to see. And that's true whether you're eating a diet that's almost nothing but starch like the potato diet or whether you're eating a ketogenic diet on the other side. You're going to see effects on appetite and body fatness that are actually quite similar to one another despite diametrically opposed macronutrient um, distribution. And so I think if we really want to understand what's going on, we have to acknowledge both of those phenomena and we have to come up with higher level principles that are able to explain all of that instead of just half of
0: that equation. All right, so why are we talking about the kitchen sink Sunday challenge and a potato farmer who decides to eat nothing but potatoes Ultimately, this story of cravings is fundamental to achieving successful weight loss, improving your blood sugar levels, lowering inflammation, because if you're hungry all the time, it's incredibly difficult in today's modern food environment with hyperpalatable calorie-dense foods all around us to have the discipline to not consume them. I mean, it's, we're literally hardwired, as you've learned through this episode from Dr. Stefan Guiney to want to consume those foods. And so this highlights why at the end of dinner, when we're full, all of a sudden we find some more room when it's time for dessert, because we're switching from a savory to a sweet taste. So what's the action item here? Well, one of the concepts I talk about in peak 40 is called master your morning, which is effectively getting that breakfast sorted out, which we talked about in episode one, but then not snacking in the morning. And that's not to suggest that snacking at any time is bad for you. It's around this notion that we want to eliminate food decisions. We don't need extra fuel in the morning. You'll have plenty of fuel from your breakfast and or just simply on your body to get you from seven, eight o'clock in the morning till your lunch. And we know from research that the extra calories just from snacking alone over the last 40 or 50 years is an extra 400 plus, which in and of itself is enough to justify the 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 weight gain and obesity epidemic. So as a way of trying to clear out all the clutter and the noise and the busyness in your life in the morning, master your morning, eat the right breakfast, don't snack till lunch. There you go, right? Have some coffee, have some tea. And it sounds so simple, yet if you do that, one third of your entire day is taken care of. Like we can now shift the focus to other areas to then support you in trying to, again, whether it's lose weight, improve your health, etc, etc. And again, ultimately, the goal here is to start to automate some of these food decisions so that when you go down mid-morning for your coffee and your colleagues are there, and you're at the cafe, you don't grab the muffin, the cookie, etc. And then ultimately what happens is that rather than your environment triggering the cues to want to snack, we are now setting up the patterns and building the patterns for you to get used to not snacking, for your brain to get used to that. Once again, master your morning, eat the right breakfast, cut out the mindless snacking mid-morning, and you'll be amazed at the progress you can make with just that simple tip. Fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please show your love by downloading and subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget our free five-day mobility challenge is happening this week so if you're struggling with aches, pains, and stiffness, sign up at drbubs.com. That's drbubs.com, and we'll kick off these movements with you this week. Also, massive thank you. My new book, Peak40, dropped last week, and we're already a number one new release. So, so thanks to everyone listening in who's picked up a copy. Really appreciate it and hope it's having an impact for you. If you have any questions, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at drbubs. I'll be back with you this Thursday for another episode. Have a great week.